Our scripture reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through chapter 4, verse 1. And we're, we're in this series on thinking about what does it mean to have the mind of a disciple? Like, what does it mean to grow spiritually as a Christian? And what, what does Paul have to say to us in the letter to the Philippians? So, let's start with hearing God's word. Um, Philippians three seventeen. hear the, the word of the Lord. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, I want, you know, think about this, this question of like, who are you and how do you think about who you are? You know, if you're an Office fan, maybe you're seeing Michael Scott and Dwight, you know, there's this moment in one of the episodes where Dwight has that face that only Dwight can have. And Michael looks at, him, looks at him and says, why are you the way that you are? Like, you know, he's just so confused by it. You know, as, as, since people have been able to ask questions, they have asked the question, who am I? Like, what is this about? Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. You've probably heard that. You know, it's almost cliche. Gandhi said, a man is but the product of his thoughts. What he thinks he becomes. John Sartre said, a man is what he wills himself to be. I like Oscar Wilde. He says this, be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. Like, identity matters. Um, Knowing who we are, it's something that our culture asks the question, like, what defines me? And for some, it's political parties, positions. Others are greatly influenced by social media. If you're a big social media person, there's these social media influencers, right? And they have pictures with perfect lighting and and kind of, it's like not real life, but it, it, it kind of looks like a life you want to have in some ways. And they say things, and, and people pay them because they're influencers. Like, influencers are important, right? You know, it helps us understand who we are and what matters. Uh, it's like Jamie and I, you know, in our marriage. If, if I have an opinion about something and she's vehemently opposed, um, maybe not at first, but like eventually I go, huh, wait a minute. Like, we're on the same page. Like, I, I want to know where she's coming from. Like, What's happening? So who are you? Kierkegaard said this, the most common form of despair is not being who you are. Now we need to know who we are. And the scriptures have something to say about who we are. But the question behind that question of who we are is this, who has the authority to even answer that question? Like who will you trust to answer the question of who are you? And what are you about? And why is life worth living? In the text this morning, Paul talks about that. But first, if you, if you look back just a couple verses um, in Philippians chapter 2, he talks about who Jesus is. Because as Christians, we look to God, we look to Jesus to give us definition about reality, about who we are in the world in which we live. Paul says that Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So Jesus is this one sent by God the Father who doesn't use his own power for his own sake, He becomes even obedient to death. He's made in human likeness. 
appears like us, and does everything necessary in order to provide a relationship for us to have with the Father. So in other words, Jesus is the ultimate servant, but he's also the king. God exalts his name above all names. He, uh, one day every knee will bow to him. Every knee in heaven and earth and under the earth will bow to him. Every, knee will, every tongue will acknowledge Jesus as Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as Christians, we look to Jesus for our definition because he loves us more than anyone else ever has. He became obedient even to death for us, but also he's the king of creation. So our identity becomes wrapped up in who he is and what he said. And then Paul takes it kind of a step further and says, in your relationships with one another, have this same mindset. So who are we? You know, we're the beloved of God. Who are we? We're the ones that the king of heaven and earth became a servant for us, interacts with us, and loves us so that we'll know how to interact and love the world in which we live. Then Paul says this in chapter 3, verse 17, the first verse that we read this morning, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. What Paul's not saying is, just be like Paul. What he's saying is, follow me as I follow Christ. In light of these things I've said to you so far about who Jesus is, imitate that. Live into the reality of who Jesus is. You know, when I was growing up, my mom and my dad would buy me these little model airplanes. I was so into it. I built like B-52s, you know, Spitfires, you know, Tomcats, anything and everything. She even bought me like Navy ships, and I'd my, build an aircraft carrier, put all these models together, and then I would set them up on my shelf, and then the planes kind of up in dogfights. And it was intriguing to me, not just because they were plastic, but because of what they represented. You know, if they weren't real, if they didn't represent something, they wouldn't have any real substance to them. And Paul's saying, look, I'm pretty much at the top of my game in everything. My career killing it. Respect before all people, I am a Pharisee of Pharisees. I have great zeal. I'm born in the right family. I'm from the right race. I've got it all. And he says, that's garbage compared to this thing, knowing Christ. Paul's saying, what if? What if that's so real and so transformative that you could model your life after it and it would yield the same thing that it's yielded in my life? Transformation. Resurrection. What Paul's saying succinctly is, Know Jesus and his love. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 9, we remember Paul's prayer for the church. This is like the goal of his letter, the goal of what he's saying model after. And this is my prayer, Paul says, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you'll be able to discern what's best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of the Father. God's prayer for the Philippian church, his invitation for them to model themselves after what they're seeing in him, is that they would what? Abound in love toward each other because they understand how much God's loved them. That they would grow in their knowledge of who Jesus is so they can understand the world in which they live. That they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. You know, one of the things that Paul's really pushing back on is finding your identity and your righteousness in something other than who Jesus is. As a first and foremost, kind of the primary definition of who you are, are you the beloved of God? We're invited into that by faith. And to put that on anything else ultimately leads us deeply unsatisfied. Paul is humble. He's dependent upon who Jesus is. He's assured of God's promises and his presence. And he says, look, this is where life is found. 
follow after me in the context of your fellowship and community. Live as we do. Now, for Paul, you know, in the Newer Testament, Paul's writing this letter, okay? He encountered Jesus himself. He was commissioned by Jesus to be an apostle. And so the letters, we consider them to be canon. We consider them to be authoritative scripture. But the scriptures that are ringing around in Paul's head when he's writing this letter to the church would have been things like what we find in Psalm 8. Psalm 8 says this, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you've established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers and the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You've made them a little lower than the angels. You've crowned them, humans, us, with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's what's going through Paul's mind as he talks about the church being his crown. He's remembering, as I've been loved, so I want to see that love become more and more apparent, more accessed, more realized in your life. Follow me, Paul's saying, in my understanding of the majesty of who God is. And the reason is, is because it leads to life. It leads to flourishing. Um, you know, Paul mentions there's really two paths here. There's this one path where he's saying, model yourself after me. You know, model yourself after what you read just earlier in the letter in Philippians 3, where Paul says, find your righteousness here in who Jesus is. Because if you don't find it there, you're going to find it somewhere else. Now, where do you find your righteousness? If you had to answer the question, why am I worth being friends with? Why am I worth being loved? Why am I worth, where's my value? Where would you go? You know, Paul discovered quickly that anything he came up with ultimately became garbage because it's not lasting, it's not enough, but he's found something where he can actually derive life from it, this righteousness that is ours as we put our hope in Jesus. And not just individually, but in the context of a community. Joined together in following my examples, brothers and sisters, just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Now, for me personally, I love solo sports. I love to go kayaking by myself, or I'll go paddle boarding, or like, I, you know, I, I was a gymnast in high school, even though it was a team sport in some ways, a lot of individual stuff. Like, we do individualism, because you don't have to depend on anybody, right? God's actually inviting us into a relationship where, yes, we depend on Him, but we do it in the context of a family. That's why the church matters. If you're wondering why Grace Presbyterian Church exists, it's for this reason, so that we can follow Jesus in the context of a family where we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, where's your identity? Where's your ultimate hope? Paul says this in verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. You hear these, these plurals, right? Our citizenship's in heaven. Our primary identity is in who God has said we are. And then he says, And we eagerly await from there the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies that they will be like his glorious body. You know, I was recently talking to a friend um, because they're, they're about to go on vacation. They're going to go to a climate that's much cooler than this. And they said it's like 70 degrees there right now. And I was like, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that's what the new heavens and new earth is going to be like. It's not going to be 95 degrees. Jesus is going to be like, it's San Diego time and, you know, all the time, Right? 
as Christians, we actually live in anticipation of things being better. We live in a world that is seeking answers in so many different places. You know, if we can just figure out the right response economically, my stocks are going to go up, right? And then everything's going to be great. If we can just figure out, like, how to resolve our differences in political parties, then everything's going to be great. If I can just figure out how to do justice in such a way that every single person is cared for right, it's not that those things aren't important. We should lean into those things. But let's just let's look at history for a minute. Which civilization would you pinpoint over the last 7,000 years that finally figured out where it was a utopia? It's not real. We should lean into it. We should long for it. God tells us as we give ourselves to our callings, whatever your job is, whatever your work is, wherever you spend your time, God wants you to honor Him in those areas. It does bring fruit. It's a beautiful thing as we love one another. But our ultimate hope is not in what? As Paul says here, our ultimate hope is not on earthly things. It's on something else. We have this citizenship in heaven. God's inviting us to have a perspective that when we answer the question, who am I? We are first and foremost the ones that God is mindful of. How many people in your life are mindful of you? Not just aware you exist, like I can see you all right now, right? Mindful. God is mindful of you. And Paul's saying as you begin to better and better understand God's love for you, your primary identity will be in that. That the God of all things, who made all things, sustains all things, approaches you and says, Find your chief identity, your righteousness, and what I've done for you first. Now, I've had lots of different experiences that I would say were identity moments. Um, I was a coach one time for one season with one of my kids, okay? So I'm not generally, generally not a coach, but I did it one time, and it was such a horrible experience that I was like, I'm never going to do this again. Really stressful. Five-year-old soccer, Okay. <laughs> You know, no dad stepped up, no mom stepped up. So I was like, okay, fine, I'll do it. You know, it's the last, it's fine, I'll make it work. So I'm coaching Walker's soccer team. And man, we won every game, every single game. I did my best. I was like, there was times because our team was so good. I was like, okay, only one defender. Everybody else stay on the other side. Well, the ball never came into our side. Okay, okay, everybody defends. Only one guy on the offensive side, on this side of the field. Well, the ball, we just kicked it from midfield and scored goals. This one wonderful Australian man who was coaching another team in the final game, it, it had finally been enough. And I, I mean, Walker was sitting, I made him sit, you know, I, I just put the weakest players out, and he just walked out in the middle of the field and goes, that's it, we're done. And I was like, I am like the worst human being in the world. Like, I am not trying to like control this game, I can't help it, they're just, they're running all over your kids' faces, I don't know, like it's, it's really hard. And, I, and I've never coached since because it was so embarrassing. I was like, this is not for me. I'm going to be the best like, supportive parent for coaches, you know, cheer them on. But I'm not going to be that guy. Now, that's kind of funny, but there's other areas maybe in your life where you're thinking, I wish that wasn't my identity, like this thing over here. Do you understand what this message is saying? Your identity, first and foremost, is this. You're created in God's image. He loves you. He offers you the opportunity to move towards something that is meaningful and lasting today by putting your faith in Christ and His righteousness. A righteousness you're not earning, a righteousness that is freely yours as you trust in Him. It's a path that Paul is inviting the people to walk, to be citizens of the heavenly kingdom. It gives us hope. We're a people who are believing and trying to believe. We're people who are patient and are trying to be patient. 
We're people who are gracious and are trying to be gracious. We're in process. And Paul's saying here, look, the one who has control over all things is going to transform your lowly body. One day, ultimately, you're going to be restored. Really glad about that. But like today, you're going to experience renewal as you begin to find your identity in Him. You know, this gives us incredible hope. Tomorrow, if you're thinking about Kyle and me, we're going to General Assembly. What is that? Well, um, it's not why you become a pastor, but it's a really important element of what we do as pastors. We're going to go to Birmingham. We're going to deal with the business of the church. Lots of elders will be there, and it's just this thing that we do. Um, But I I want you to know, as I head to Birmingham, I'm not going to leave my house and kind of just say, I'm going to just drive this direction. Like, I'm going to drive specifically to, like, I think, Shreveport or something, and, or, and that way, and then eventually I'm going to go to, to Birmingham. Very specific route, whatever my GPS tells me to do, right? Paul said, if you notice what Paul does here, he says, look, there are only two routes here. You can either know that you are deeply loved by God and find your identity in Him and have this unshakable hope to stand firm on, as he talks about um, in Philippians chapter 4, or there's another way, and it's the other way. One leads to life, and one leads to something else. Paul calls it destruction. Listen to these words. This is verse 18. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. There may be people in this room right now who consider themselves an enemy of the cross of Christ. Or maybe not. Like, maybe you're not an enemy, but you wouldn't call yourself an ally. Like, you're not quite on board with what's going on here. In fact, you're not alone. Um, A recent Gallup poll done in 2020 said that 47% of U.S. adults belong to a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. 47% of adults in America. That may be an irrelevant number to you, except for the fact that up until 2010, it was like 71% for the previous 60 years. People are wondering, like, what what is church about? What is worship about? What is God about? What difference does it make? So you're not alone in that. But just, I'm going to speak just to the Christian church for a moment. Would you say the church is a blessing to the community or not? And there's a lot of, hit, there's, you know, you have news and it's sensationalized, that's true. But like in general, is the church a blessing to the community? There was another uh, a research article written last year on, they tried to quantify the economic benefit that a church brings to a community on average. Like what's the on average two to 500 member church contribution to their community? Whether you're a Christian or not, like, what's the contribution? They quantified it this way. They said that on average, a church about our size, up to 500, contributes about $1.5 million of economic um, benefit to its local community. And this is how they quantified it. They put things like um, hosting events. So, like, at Grace, we host um, AA meetings, for example. We host Cornerstone, which is an alternative peer group for adolescents who are in recovery. We have ESL. We've had a thriving ESL ministry here for years. And so they take all these things and they like quantify what it would cost for these individual organizations to have their own little thing and what that would mean for them in the community. Or mental health. Um, you know, as pastors, we meet with people when they're in really good places and really difficult places. And it's a sacred role that it's, it's just between us and you. But we pray with you, whether you're struggling in your marriage or you're struggling raising your kids. By the way, if you're married and you have kids, you're struggling. So we're here for you, to pray with you and be with you. There's all these little benefits. And I only point that out to say this, that the church is actually meant to be a blessing to the community. We're meant to figure out how to hack in to mattering to people. 
If you're new to grace, I hope when you leave here today, you think to yourself, I don't know if I'm an ally. I don't think I'm an enemy. I don't know if I'm an ally. But at least I can see like the benefit of their presence. There's something about what Jesus is doing where we're meant to be a blessing. We're meant to be an encouragement. So how are we to approach people who are enemies of Christ? Listen to Paul's words again. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears. Paul's approach to people who are enemies of the church or are disinterested in the church is compassion and kindness and mercy. You know what it's not? Judgment and condemnation and condescension. We're meant to be a people who are so overwhelmed with the kindness and mercy and grace that God's shown us that we begin to what? Model our lives after it. God does not treat us as our sins deserve. What if we didn't treat people like their sins deserve? Not because we're trying to get God's favor, but because we already have God's favor. What if we hacked into asking the question, what does it mean for me to love others well? Like we had VBS here a couple weeks ago. Those kids had so much fun. I'm still singing marvelous, marvelous, marvelous things in my head. It's just a small way for us to exhibit the love of Christ because God has been so gracious to us. You know, that quote from Kierkegaard earlier, he says this, the most common form of despair is not being who you are. Who are you? Where's your identity? God is, God is giving us in the scriptures here a place where we can stand firm on something that is unshakable. It's not defined by me or the church of the 20th century or the church of the 15th century. It's something given to us by God in these scriptures for us to have something to cling to in an ever-changing, chaotic world. Here's the catch. If you lean into who Jesus is and you follow him and put your faith, what you're going to discover is abundant grace. Paul is saying the other path, what you're going to discover in whatever you're putting is absolutely central to yourself. Ultimately, you're going to find that it disappoints. Take wealth, for example. Well, if you're in the stock market right now, you know how quick that can evaporate. Or take age. I hate to tell you this, but like every time the sun goes up and goes down, this, this is you moving towards like the next year, decade. I was just talking to a friend where I, I was like, remember when 40 sounded old? It's not old. Like, man, I'd, I'd like to be 40 again. You know, what are you putting your ultimate hope? Maybe you're putting, what about this? And my kids are older now, so it's a little different. Maybe you have parenting righteousness. You ever heard of this? It's that thing when you see some little child in the mall completely misbehaving and you begin to figure out if they would just do it this way, they would do it, you know, their kid wouldn't act that way. What if the approach was more like this? How can I help? Like, kids are tough. They come really rotten, and we got to work on it. That's why they live at home for 18 years. Like, we gotta, they got to marinate around us, right? Maybe it's work righteousness. Maybe you are just killing it in your career, and you've kind of fallen under the deception that the only reason other people are struggling is they're just not as good as you. Like, what would it mean to be compassionate? Paul's saying here to the enemies of the church, even with tears. And this is why. Because the destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. To say their God is their stomach is like saying, this is, this is what they listen to. Here's their, here's their biggest God. You ready? Appetite. The thing with appetites is they are insatiable. And then he says their glory is their shame. Well, what's that mean? Well, it means that what happens is 
um, as they pursue that appetite or they pursue that thing that they think is so significant, they discover this God that I've been worshiping can't actually give me what it promised. I thought the God of like controlling my kids would equal perfectly behaved children. I thought the God of like sacrificing all of my time and life for work would equal like a really awesome retirement. Like I don't know what it is, but whatever that thing is you're making absolutely central, Paul's saying eventually true colors come out and it, and it becomes very painful and difficult. It becomes destruction. Paul says they're set on earthly things, that that's their definition. Their, their minds are focused here. Let me do an experiment with you. If you're standing on the earth and it's flat, so maybe you're looking out over the ocean, or if you're in a desert and it doesn't have any dunes at all, so we'll stick with the beach. How far do you think you can see before the curvature of the earth disables you from seeing any further, like on the earth? Do you have any idea? Just put the number in your head for a second. So for those scientists out here, if it's wrong, you can tell me later, but this is, what, this, is this recent article I read. 3.2 miles if you're not vertically challenged. I think it's five, five feet, six inches, seven inches. So if you're a six-footer, you get, you get more more visibility but it's three about three miles is how far you can see what about if you're standing at 5,000 feet how far do you think you can see at 5,000 feet it's 100 miles supposedly from Everest they say you can see 250 to 350 miles if you're standing on the top of that what if you look in the heavens how far can you see there are these stars these galaxies these celestial bodies what are you seeing here's what's ironic it's all the same distance it's the light that's coming to your eyes. When you're staring up into the heavens, this light has come towards you so you can see this thing that is so far off and you know it's majestic and the more you stare at it, the more you want to understand it. Listen, God's grace is approaching you this morning. If you're having any interest in knowing God more today, any, if you're intrigued with this Jesus thing at all, it's because the light is coming towards you and God is inviting you to go to a path that leads to thriving and flourishing versus just something that you can make on your own out of dirt a heavenly citizenship john chapter 3 verse 17 jesus says god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him that's who we are one of the biggest dangers paul's addressing here is finding your righteousness in something other than what's actually righteous your career is not going to be able to sustain you perfectly behaved children listen there's no such thing Okay, they all need a lot of grace. Needs a, we need a village, right? Paul's saying, if you're trusting and you're excellent, like maybe you're excellent in all things, it's going to disappoint. Paul's saying, listen, you're a citizen of heaven. Your righteousness is in Christ. You're precious to the God who made you. And all of this is yours by faith in what he has said. It's why Paul writes in uh, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. What are you standing firm in? What's firm? What do you really believe in? God's inviting you to something greater. Let me read this to you since it's Dad's Day. These are some comments people have made about their fathers, okay? Don't worry, they're all nice. Chill out, Dad's. Fathers are the first friend you make and the last love of your life. A dad is more than just the sum of his parts. He's the very soul of the family. Fathers are patient, kind, and loving. You are, you are all of these and more to me. A dad is the anchor upon which his children stand. Fathers are men who dare to place the world's hopes. Yaddy, 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 right? Do you, are you encouraged? Like That is one of the most discouraging things I can think of. 
Like, I have failed as a dad in different ways. Um, the idea that my kids' complete welfare is going to be based on my ability to protect them, I'm like, they've got to be bigger. God's got to be bigger. I think they need something more than that. Listen to what Jesus says. This is Matthew chapter 7. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And so in everything, do to others that you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. So Jesus is saying, if you want to sum up the law and the prophets, if you want to sum up, which is like that much of the Bible, this is the summary. You have a Father who loves you, who wants to give you the good gift of community in a church, the good gift of His presence, the good gift of a certain grace, something to stand firm on in the midst of the world we live in, and not just for you, but for your children. You know, as we celebrate communion, be encouraged. Come to the Father who welcomes you, who is gracious to you. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks for your scriptures. We give you thanks that you give us this incredible heavenly vision of what you're doing among us. That somehow your spirit is at work in us to transform us now in ways, but to give us this certain hope of one day when Christ returns, catching us up with him and being transformed with him. Would you work in us even now as we celebrate the supper, build us up, increase our faith, remind us that Christ is the firm rock to stand upon. In his name we pray, amen.